Welcome to the Consumed Church Weekly Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoy this message, It's Time for Harvest, by special guest Duncan Smith. For any further information about this service or the ministries of Consumed Church, you can check us out at theconsumedchurch.com. We love you and Lauren and your team. Thank you for hosting us. It's my honor. I just feel like there's, there's a gift of hospitality on your church here. And I just want to bless that. I want to bless that spiritual gift of hospitality, of bringing people in, of making them feel loved and seen and heard. And after what you've been through as a church, the Holy Spirit is resurrecting and reestablishing the calling of this church consumed. And so we declare into the atmosphere of this area of, the, of DFW that Jesus is here. He is doing a new thing. There is momentum in the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is building his church. He's rebuilding this one for his glory, for the purposes of the end times and the harvest of souls and that the love of God would just burst out of these walls into the neighborhoods and the streets. Thank you, Holy Spirit. And Matt and team and Lauren, thank you for just ministering the word and the the spirit this morning. And I just saw a vision just as we were pouring oil on Paula then. I saw that we were oil being oiled that the oil of the anointing was coming on us to the measure that we were willing to receive the oil, the fresh oil of the Holy Spirit. And you only need a match to set that oil on fire. But I saw as the word and the spirit and the flow of the Holy Spirit in the worship was just dousing us with oil. And I was like, gosh, just keep massaging, keep pouring that on every part of my heart, my soul, the areas that we felt anxious in, the areas we've been troubled, the areas we've been looking for freedom. And so I declare the oil of the Holy Spirit will go to places that you've never known could go to (laughs) because the Holy Spirit is going to put a match and, and just consume us with his credible fire. So... You're aptly living up to your name. You will be consumed with oil and fire in this place. And we've, we've had the joy of spending some time with John and Lauren, and we didn't realize how passionate John was about fishing. <laughs> now, I think probably many of you already know that. If you're part of this church family, you know he loves fishing. And, um, you know... I saw John getting so excited about the fish. He was making my husband really excited. And all his good fishing expertise just rubbed off on on Duncan, which was amazing. But the Holy Spirit's just been speaking to me just in fish. It's like, I'm not going to spoil the message or anything like that. But I just felt like John and Lauren, just in the natural, there is so much joy in the harvest. You say, I'm amped up. 
I want you to remain amped up because there's so much joy in this place. There's so much joy in the kingdom. There's so much joy in the Holy Spirit. And I just see like the Lord is replacing mourning for joy. And there is going to be so much fun. The fish are going to be so easy to catch. And we are going to be overjoyed. Jesus sent the 70 and the 72 out. And they came back to Jesus. And it says that they were filled with joy. That even the, the demons were subject to us in the name of Jesus. There is so much joy in the harvest to be had. And so we just say, Lord, would you bring that on? Would this be the most joyful church in this radius? And we declare in the atmosphere that the kingdom of heaven is invading and just coming even further. So I just want you all just to be open to what God wants to do. And, and as you trust your leaders to lead you, that you, they will hear from God and you will joyfully follow where the Holy Spirit is taking you all. And um, so it's our joy to be here as well and, um, and be part of Sunday morning and this weekend. Thank you, Matthew, for just taking care of the hospitality. And yeah, the, this is a, a safe place to be, a, a place of love. And um, we send greetings from our church, Catch the Fire in Raleigh, Durham. Um, our church is being led by our daughter and son-in-law. They're millennial leaders. And um, we were just tuning in to hear our daughter preach this morning. But we come as ones that know that there are seasons and times to what God is doing among his church. And we are in an exciting season of life. And um, now our kids are all grown up. They all love Jesus. We've got three daughters and three son-in-laws. They all love Jesus. And they're living the life that God has called them to be, where they can go and make a difference in their life. And so this is a place where you can receive all that you need from heaven so that you can go and make a difference in your life to those people that you connect with every day of the week or in your cafes, in your restaurants. I was just talking to some of the ladies about how easy it is to bring the presence of God in a restaurant that opens up conversation. We were doing this last, last evening and we were praying for Norm. Welcome, Norm and Angel, our beautiful friends from Abilene, Texas. They came over to be part of this weekend and... Um, we were praying for Norm, and it was, you know, you know how we pray for people? It's kind of a, a noise and a, like, pushing the Holy Spirit, releasing the Holy Spirit. It's sometimes not very quiet, but it's, there's power attached to our hands as we lay hands on each other. And as we prayed for Norm, I noticed the man behind on the other table was kind of getting hit by the overflow of the Holy Spirit, and we were laughing and enjoying God together in his presence because there's fullness of joy in his presence. And at the end, I just went up to him and said, um, I couldn't help but notice that as we prayed for Norm that you were feeling the Holy Spirit over there. And I just started talking to them as though Holy Spirit was their best friend. 
But I wasn't sure if they kind of knew Holy Spirit in that way. But I just carried on anyway because there was a tangible manifestation of not only his presence, but his love was spilling over. And I want to encourage you, you are a love bomb and a joy bomb to your world. And we don't have to do much, but just remember how joyful we can be when we're a child with our daddy. And I just want to encourage you and bless you. So, honey, over to you. You're a joy bomb. Turn with me to Ezekiel 29, everybody. Thank you very, very much, John and Lauren, for inviting us and for opening up this opportunity for us to share this message this morning. And I've been very excited to share it with you. And, uh, whoa. If you're wondering what this says, this is a Catch the Fire shirt from our uh, Japan family. We have 12 Catch the Fire churches in Japan. How amazing is that? We've got five in Taiwan and... Uh, just churches all over the world, everybody, about 200 of them. So, And this one says movement. And uh, because that's one of our passions, we're a movement. A lasting revival is a revival that turns into a movement. And the Holy Spirit moved powerfully in Toronto for 12 years, nightly meetings every single night, over a 1,000 people every night. Kate and I came from the UK. We got wrecked. And uh, we, 22 years ago, we joined the team in Toronto, emigrated with our family. And, uh, but that revival that started then, still going today, but it's all over the world now as a movement. And not just in our own ministry, but also in, of Catch the Fire world, but also in multiple ministries around the world that, that God's moving. In fact, the, the body of Christ is not the same since the Holy Spirit has been poured out in these last three, almost three decades. But I was reading, um, I I love to read the Bible through from cover to cover uh, every year. My wife, when I first met her, she asked me what my Bible reading um, uh, discipline was. And it turned out, um, you know, I, I said to her, I read a few, you know, I read a little passage of scripture and I try to memorize it and so on. And she said, oh, you, you need to upgrade your discipline. You, you need to write, read the Bible from intentionally from cover to cover. And uh, I was like, whoa, I want to marry you. But that was a slap. And, uh, you know, it made me want to marry her right away, you know. But um, she just come back from YWAM, so she was just full of Jesus. And uh, she still is. And so I want to encourage you, actually. Spontaneity is the reward of discipline. I learned that from a musician. And, you know, very often, especially uh, when we get free in the Holy Spirit, we, we, we have a temptation to just, you know, rely on the indwelling Holy Spirit for our meal of the Word of God. And I want to encourage you not to do that, but to spend time reading the Logos. Jesus is the Logos. He's the Word made flesh. Spend time reading the Word of God every single day. Meditate on it. 
day and night. And then you're going to get the rhema word that is the fresh word that comes from that, that intimate relationship that you have with Jesus by spending time in the word of God, okay? So don't be a flaky Christian and just rely on social media for your spiritual content. Whoa. In the 27, uh, uh, Ezekiel 29, verse 17, I was just reading through and I read this passage of scripture. I'm going to bounce off of it because I want to get into the meat of what God's given us. But the Lord used this passage of scripture to open my eyes to the season that we're in. And the title of my message is, It's Harvest Time, Everybody. It's Harvest Time. In the 27th year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Verse 18, son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made his army labor hard against Tyre. Every head was made bald and every shoulder was rubbed bare, yet neither he nor his army got anything from Tyre to pay for the labor that he had performed against her. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall carry off its wealth and despoil it and plunder it, and it shall be the wages for his army. I have given him the land of Egypt as his payment for which he labored, because they worked for me, declares the Lord God. On that day I will cause a horn, that means strength, to spring up from the house for the house of Israel, and I will open your lips among them. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I was reading this passage of Scripture, and of course, contextually, historically, uh, this is right at the, um, at the time when Israel was carried by Nebuchadnezzar into exile and so on. And Ezekiel is prophesying uh, during that time that Nebuchadnezzar's hard labor against Tyre, which was a city of great wealth and great riches because it was a trading city situated right on the Mediterranean coast, was very famous for its riches. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar, drawn to all of those riches, did his absolute best to conquer that city and get his hands on them. But the city being hard, being, being, being an extremely fortified city, Nebuchadnezzar labored hard. And so here's the Lord saying, I'm going, you've labored hard for me, but I'm going to give you a reward. I'm going to give you Egypt, and it's going to be easy for you for your hard labor. Well, what has that to do with us today? I was just, as I was meditating on the Lord over the summer, pondering this whole dynamic, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit spoke to me. And he said, Duncan, the church, my church today is laboring hard in the wrong direction for a harvest. We, I need to contextualize just slightly further. A man by the name of Bob Jones, who was a famous uh, person with a powerful prophetic ministry, a prophet uh, in the nations, he's gone to be with the Lord now. Bob Jones prophesied famously that we were going to enter into a decade of a billion soul harvest. A billion soul harvest. Okay, that's not for our sakes, everybody. That's because God loves the world so much. He wants a billion of his children saved in this generation and with him and with us for eternity. 
Okay, so when we say a billion soul harvest, we're talking about a God who's filled with love and joy and excitement at the thought of a billion children not going to hell. Okay, so let's just let that sink in for just a moment. You're blessed. You're not going to hell. You're going to spend eternity with Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, not if you go to church, but if you believe in Jesus. And you're rare right now. You're rare right now. The majority at the moment turned away from God in this nation and all over the world. There are places where whole people groups have never ever heard the name of Jesus. And God wants to change that. And he's handpicked each of us to be partners with him of changing that. And he is going to change it. And we're about to experience a gigantic uh, work of the Holy Spirit through us all. Where we get to carry the kingdom with signs and wonders and miracles. And evidences of the reality of Jesus and the power of the kingdom. We get to demonstrate that and bring in people from the dominion of darkness, from Satan's reign, where he's holding them in bondage to all kinds of things that are ruining their lives, and we get to bring them into the glorious freedom of the sons of God. We get to bring them into the wonderful family of God, where they're blessed beyond wildest imagination for all of eternity, and saved and in right relationship with, with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and with each other. Families restored and bodies healed and finances transformed and on and on and on so that we're blessed in order that we can be a people that bless the world. An expanding, growing family of Jesus lovers, people one with Christ, filling the world with God's love. A billion more of us. <clears throat> Probably in the next decade. And so that's the context of the Lord speaking to me. I'm thinking about all of that. And the Lord says to me, the church, speaking of the body of Christ around the world, which, by the way, guess where the fastest growing church is right now in the world? Guess which nation? Fastest growing church in the world. Faster even than China, which has over 30,000 people coming to Jesus every day. Faster than that. Don't be thinking that what we see in America is what the kingdom looks like, everybody. Right now, the Holy Spirit is sweeping across the earth. The nations are getting saved in their hundreds and hundreds of thousands a day right now. Right now. Right now. When you get into heaven, you're going to go a long way before you reach the end of all the Chinese people in heaven. Guess where the fastest growing church is? Iran, exactly. Iran! I think the Ayatollah Khomeini would have just, would turn in his grave thinking about that. Because he was so anti-Christianity. Uh, but you can't stop Jesus. It's impossible. Okay, so I'm thinking about all of this, and the Holy Spirit says, the church, my body, the bride, has been laboring hard for the gospel for the harvest, 
but they've been laboring hard in the wrong direction. And your heads are bald, your shoulders are bare, you've worked super hard. And you've done it all for me. Well done. However, you've been doing, you've been going in the wrong direction. And if you'll just pivot, I'll give you all of Egypt. And Egypt, allegorically, in the scriptures, is allegorically symbolic of the dominion of darkness, of people who don't know Jesus, being rescued out of that, like Israel was rescued by Moses, a foretaste of the gospel, where in Christ Jesus, every human being can be rescued out of Egypt, out of Satan's domain, and be brought into the promised land of Jesus' kingdom, his rule and reign. And so, allegorically speaking, the Lord was speaking to me and saying, if my church understands it's harvest time and switches and pivots, I'm going to give them a great harvest. So, turn with me to Matthew, just real quick. We're going to actually spend uh, the majority of the time in John 21, but I want you just to take a look at Matthew 17 by way of introduction as to who might be this new, well, not new, but But the harvest fields that Jesus is looking at right now. Matthew 17, verse 24. This very kind of obscurely placed uh, moment in the Gospel of Matthew, right after Jesus has been transfigured on the Mount of, Trans, uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Then they come down and Jesus heals this boy with the demon. Then he tells about his death and resurrection. And then there's this weird little, I mean, it's not weird. Well, it is a weird story, but it's an awesome story. But it's kind of in an odd place. When they came to Capernaum, verse 24, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, and when he said, Peter said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. You can just see him smiling away. The sons are free. However, so as not to give offense to them, go to the sea, the Sea of Galilee, and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. Now, he's speaking to a fisherman. He's speaking to a generational fisherman right here, okay, who stopped fishing in order to follow Jesus at Jesus' invitation. And he's one of the 12, and he's one of the disciples, the followers of Jesus, one of the future apostles of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says to him, in the context of paying the temple tax, go to the sea, cast a hook, take the first fish that comes up. Boy, he must have been like, oh, please let me catch a fish, please. And I've just been fishing with, with uh, as Kate mentioned, with John. And I got a sort of fresh sense of the anxiety of Peter right here as he's hoping to catch that first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth... You will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and you. 
I mean, well, John and I, because of John's expertise, nothing to do with me. I was just the, the, the recipient of favor and years and years of experience, as well as John's amazing equipment, etc., and lifetime of fishing, and all of his markings of all the places that he's discovered where all the fish are. I went to a lake with John, a big lake, and we caught a total of 60 fish in one day. Largemouth bass. Now, there's guys that would be excited about catching six largemouth bass. I'm going to show you the picture of my largemouth bass. I don't think so. I'm just going to show you one right here. That's a fish. I caught that. That's pretty epic. You need to know, I'm not a fisherman. I was beyond ecstatic. That was my 29th fish. I mean, I was ecstatic when I, when I caught this one. This was my first fish of the day. I was really happy with this fish. Okay? Now, we opened all 60 of those fish's mouths. There wasn't treasure in any of them. Despite being a largemouth bass, there was no shekels inside their mouths. By the way, see that? That's the testimony of me bringing the hook out of 29 fish. Yeah, because John made sure that I graduated towards becoming a fisherman by handling my own re retrieving of the hook. Thanks, John. And those things, you're just about to go do the right thing and they flip all over the place and razor you. Anyway, Peter catches this fish inside the fish's mouth. Now let me ask you something. When did that coin go in the fish's mouth? Was it born with it? I mean, God could do that. He's God. Was it just cruising along one day? Wow, business as usual. Whoa, what's that silver flash? That didn't go too well. Can't, can't even swallow that one. Oh, oh, there's another little silver. Wow. And up he goes, up to the top, wondering what in the world just happened to his world. There he was for a moment just enjoying life. And the next thing he knows, he's thrashing around, being yanked where he doesn't want to go. He's got the worst toothache in his, in, in his entire life. And then, boom, he's out of the water. Whoa, what's this? I've never been out. And before you know it, fingers are going in. Out comes the problem. And then the fish gets thrown back. And the choking thing is gone. And Peter is like, yeah, hey, woo! And he goes down to the temple and he pays the tax. And the coolest thing of all is the whole thing was centered on do you, does your master pay taxes? And Peter's like, yes, I think, I think so. And he's thinking, I hope they don't realize I haven't paid them as well. And, he's, and he goes to Jesus, and Jesus has this conversation with him, and he gets to pay Jesus' tax and his own tax. Cool, right? Great story, right? What's it got to do with harvest time? Are you ready for this? Scholars, I did a study on this, 
scholars really kind of, how can I say it? There's a strong thread of thought among scholars that the reason why Jesus said, pay your tax and mine, and not all the other disciples, remember there was 12 disciples, Peter's one of them, there were 13 drachma tax, 13 shekel taxes to pay. But he only said, yours and mine, Peter. You know why? Because you had to be 20 years old to have to pay the tax. And most scholars believe that this is a glimpse into the reality that Jesus' 12 disciples, only one of them was over 20 years old. The rest of them were under 20. They were not sophisticated geezers driving around in their BMWs. They were a bunch of kids that had just finished the playground. And they just started working as apprentices in their father's businesses or in the tax booths or whatever it might be. They were all young adults or, or youth. And we've lost touch with that reality. We think of Jesus' 12 disciples as guys that are 40 years old, 35 year old. No, no, they were 17 18, 19, they weren't even eligible to have to pay the temple tax yet. Come on, just let that sink in. Just, a, just, just let that sink in just a little bit. And you'll realize what I'm talking about when the Holy Spirit said to me, you're fishing in the wrong direction. It's harvest time, everybody. But the harvest is not where you've been laboring really hard. You've been trying to win adults. You've been trying to win parents. You've been trying to win grandparents. You've been trying to win great-grandparents. But in harvest time, that's not the age that people are the most open to the gospel by heaven's design. You're, you, it's like you're trying to win Tyre when really a strong fortress with all of its wealth, but really I've got Egypt for you. And it's going to be easy. Come on. Come on, just let it sink. Okay, here we go. How many of you in this room gave your life to Jesus before you turned 25 years old? Raise your hands. <clears throat> okay, just look around. Right up. Come on, you guys are... You're so, uh, I mean, somebody's there going, you know. Right up. Give it up. No, I'm only kidding. I'm teasing you. <laughs> Okay, how many of you, all right, that was almost every hand. Let's, let's flip it the other way around so that we can really go, oh. How many of you gave your life to Jesus after the age of 25? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven people. How many of you gave your life to Jesus after you turned 30? Five, six, seven, eight, eight, nine. Okay, so out of this group of people, most people, that's an unusual high number, by the way, of people who gave their lives to Jesus over the age of 25. That is an unusually high. So I would say that we were at about, probably in this room, 70 to 30. But in many places that I've done this count, and also, according to Barna Research, almost 90% of people give their lives to Jesus under the age of 25 years old. And yet, 
when it comes to, we say, a billion-soul harvest, we don't think 15-year-olds. We don't think 8-year-olds. And in fact, if we're really, really honest, we don't give the same level of credence to somebody getting saved at the age of 8 as we do to them getting saved at the age of 28. But heaven does. There is, there is great rejoicing in the presence of the angels when one sinner gives their life to Jesus, even if they're three years old. The party's exactly the same as it is for a 30-year-old. We're the ones who have to wake up and realize that we're measuring the wrong way. We're getting excited the wrong direction. We're working hard to win 30-year-olds when in reality, 13-year-olds are far more likely to give their lives to Jesus. You say, well, how am I going to reach a 13-year-old? Well, how many of you in this room have got grandchildren, have got children? If you've got 13-year-old children, 15-year-old children, then your 13 and 15-year-olds will give their lives to Jesus if you resort, sorry, your 13 and 15-year-olds already who know Jesus that are in your family, they will win their friends to Jesus if you resource those 13 and 15-year-olds to do that. And when I say resource them, I'm talking about helping them to become friends, making your home to be a place that they're so welcoming, they invite their friends. Many Christian homes when I was growing up were so religious that the last place we ever wanted our friends to come to was our own religious homes. Kate and I made sure that our home was not religious. I'm not talking about pure religion, everybody. I'm talking about, you know, rules, regulations, and legalism. We made sure that it wasn't like that. And as a result, our friends brought their friends home. Our friends gave our children's friends when they were teenagers, when they were 17 years old, would bring their friends home, and then their friends would get saved on the couch in our living room. Our home was a place that Kate and I used to facilitate a great harvest for our children's friends to come to know Jesus. And we sent our children to public school. And the reason we did that was because we're pastors. And we're not very good teachers, are we, doll? So the thought of homeschooling was anathema to us, and we just didn't want to commit cruelty to our children. But also, also, we really didn't want to as because we're pastors and that's our whole life, we just didn't, for us, I'm not saying anything against homeschooling, I'm saying for us, we just didn't feel that we wanted our children to have mom and dad as pastors and mom and dad as their teachers and have no way of really touching the world. And so we took the brave step of releasing our children. I say the brave step because, oh my goodness, some of the some of the eye-watering conversations that we had to have around the dinner table of the things that were being pumped into our kids. But darkness cannot overcome the light. And the light of the gospel of Jesus in our children's hearts, not because we forced them, but because we nurtured them into a relationship with the Holy Spirit. And we nurtured them into desiring to sit with Jesus and read the Word of God, not because we told them to do it, but because we invited them into a relationship with the Holy Spirit and He drew them into the Word. He drew them into an amazing, intimate 
love affair with Jesus. So, goodness, why does time go so fast when I'm talking? So frustrating. Turn with me to John chapter 21. It goes so slowly when everyone else is talking. And then when I get to talk, it just speeds up and just goes zipping by. It's just not fair. John 21 verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Galilee. Okay? So he's appearing to these teenagers again. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two others. Boy, sucks to be those two guys. Didn't even get mentioned by name. And two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. Now listen, guys, contextually, that was not okay. This is a guy who denied Jesus three times, who told Jesus he would never leave him, who told Jesus, you're never going to die on the cross, I won't let that happen, who cut off the servant high priest's ear, and Jesus had to heal it in Gethsemane. I read it this morning, just happens to be my Bible reading through in the year, brought curses down on himself the third time he denied Jesus. Like he's, he's using the F word liberally. Jesus has appeared to him and to Thomas, who's the one who said, I, I won't believe if, if I don't put my hands in his hands and hand in his side and see his feet. And I'm not going to believe in Jesus. And Jesus appears to Thomas. And here's Simon Peter, who's denied Jesus. Thomas, who also denied the resurrection, but then saw Jesus. James and John, who were one of the three with Peter, who went to everything, saw the transfiguration, and they all drink the Kool-Aid. What Kool-Aid? It's hopeless. Let's go fishing again. Let's go back to what we used to do. Let's just go back. Let's do it again. I mean, he, he, yeah, yeah, he's risen from the dead, but then he goes somewhere. Where, did it, where in the world does he go? He doesn't care about us. He hasn't even spoken to me about the fact that I denied him. I could imagine Peter thinking. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out. They got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children! Told you they were young. Do you have any fish? And they answered him, no! And he said to them, well, cast the net on the other side of the boat. Try that. You'll find some. And so they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And I was sitting in, in Bali, Indonesia with all of our leaders. And some of our team were talking to me. And all of a sudden, I went into a vision. The Lord just out of left field just spoke to me out of this passage. He said to me, Duncan, do you know why they fished all night and caught nothing? Because, see, the way they fished, John, was they had a pole extension with a lamp, which is a burning fire and oil 
on a, on a big old pole hanging off the side, out on the side of the boat at night. And it would attract, the light would attract the fish. But they didn't realize that there was a problem with that fishing method that night. This is what the Holy Spirit showed me. The problem was there were no fish down there because all the fish were lined up in a gigantic school of fish because the light of the world himself was standing on that bank. You want to catch fish? You want to go where Jesus is hanging out? Let me tell you something. People who don't know Jesus want him way more than you realize it. They're so hungry for the light of the world. They're so hungry for Jesus. They're not into, they're not, they're not as into their broken lives as you think they are. Every drug addict, when they're sober, the last thing they want to do for a few minutes is ever take drugs again. Every alcoholic, the last thing they ever want to do after they sober up is have another drink. Every person who's masturbating and pornography, every person who's spending money that's not theirs on the credit card, every single person in this world who is caught in the bondage of sin, in the moment it's pleasurable, but the moment it's after they wish they couldn't do it. Every Muslim, every Buddhist, every Hindu, Every church-going Christian that doesn't know Jesus. Every atheist. Every school kid. Every university child, uh, youth. Every single person I've ever met in my life. When they're on their own, the secret place of their hearts, when they're stumbling to the bathroom in the middle of the night, they wish they weren't living the life they were living. They wish they could get out. You know what? Our little contraptions, our little programs, evangelism, outreach programs, good as they are, they will not catch fish in comparison to the present representation of the magnificent, glorious light of the world. And that light of the world is not standing on the shores of Galilee dwells on the inside of each of us and all he needs is for us to be a people with unveiled faces to reveal the light of the world himself and how do we do that we do it in miracles and signs and wonders yes we do it in all those things but I want you may the Holy Spirit open our eyes for a few seconds look at this this is where you'll find him. This is where the world will find Jesus in you. That, so they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for previously he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. 
the other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land but about a hundred yards off okay fasten your seat belts everybody the Lord is about to show you how you can live the rest of your life winning people to Jesus are you ready and when they got out on land they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it oh and bread and Jesus said to them bring some of the fish that you've just caught so Simon Peter went abroad and hauled went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish 153 and although there were so many the net was not born and Jesus said to them come and have breakfast come and have breakfast if you spend the rest of your life having breakfast with people who don't know Jesus you're gonna have a harvest if you spend your life and your resources setting your children up and your grandchildren up who know Jesus to be able to go have breakfast with their friends who don't know Jesus and you fuel them with the reality of the kingdom of heaven that's within them and the power of the Holy Spirit on the inside of them and the outside of them that they can lay their hands on their friends and see them instantly healed if you'll do that you will plunder Egypt and have a gigantic harvest of large fish they might look like they're 15 year olds right now but they might be the future governor of, the, of, of Texas we don't know the future of our children's friends and our grandchildren's friends and our great-grandchildren's friends. We don't know their destiny. We don't know their future. They might be the president of the United States. They might be the future greatest javelin thrower that history's ever known. They may be the new 100-meter sprinter, but they do it with Jesus on the inside of them because you gave breakfast for them because they were your grandson's best friend. Our church is a multicultural church in Raleigh, North Carolina. We have people from all the nations of the world. Our church is packed full of African Americans. Our church is packed full of Hispanic people. Our church is packed, not packed, many Indians many people from all the different nations of the world because we're in a very multicultural area. So are you. You know, when all of that stuff happened, the tragedy of what happened with Flo Mr. Floyd and all of those things that were just so awful, we interviewed one of our African-American pastors who's on full, he's on, he's a full-time pastor on our team. Kate and I interviewed him on our podcast, Into the Fire. And you know what was astonishing to me? He was a high school student before he ever went into the house of a white family. He was a high school student before any white person who knew Jesus invited him into the house. And you know why he was invited in? Because he was the best friend of that white kid who was a footballer 
and they were best teammates on the football field. And his best friend said, I want you to come to my house. Said it shook him. So nervous he didn't know what to do with himself. Broke my heart. I was born in Nigeria. I grew up there. To me, a person's skin color is absolutely the way God made them. God is not colorblind. The problem is we'd like him to be. But let me tell you something. True unity, it is never conformity. True unity is celebrated diversity. It's when we look at each other and we realize, oh my goodness, all of your differences are God's way of giving you a love gift for me. It's where I can, I can look at my life and, and instead of thinking, oh, I wish I could be like everybody else, I look at my life and I start to realize I'm different. Yay, I'm different. And so now all my differences become a context for Jesus to reveal himself to the world around me through my differences. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. He's such a lover. He's so relaxed. He didn't say, come on, strike up the guitar, get the drums going, let's have the bass line. All right, come on everybody. Not, nothing against any of our bands. I'm just saying, he didn't say, okay everybody, on your knees, start confessing right now. Who's Lord? Who? He's chill. He's like frying fish for them. Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. <laughs> He's going to give us the lost, everybody. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, and I'd never seen it until I was rereading it this morning. The first thing that Jesus spoke into him was his identity again. Simon, son of John, I know your dad. I know your daddy was the best fisherman in all of Galilee. Simon, that's who you are, son of John. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than all of these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. 
And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, tr and then he goes on to talk about the kind of death he's going to die to glorify Jesus. I want you to notice before we finish, the first thing he said was feed my lambs. Please, consume church, a wonderful catch the fire church. Would you switch your attention away from trying to work hard to win all the adults and make a decision in your heart as a mom, as a dad, as a single person, as a grandparent, as a divorcee, of what, whatever you are. Understand you are who you are now for such a time as this. You know people who are under the age of 25. Devote the rest of your life to helping them reach their age groups. And never forget it moving on so you have to keep pivoting every single year because the people that you spend your life in revival with at the beginning get older have children move on and the revival will die out if you don't empower every single church member to constantly keep thinking about the young people the young Evangelism is about the young people. Evangelism is about the young people. Evangelism is about the young people. Soul winning is about the young people. Live your life serving the young people. One of the things that I love is that kids love people like John and Lauren. <clears throat> make a decision in your heart. Jesus, make me the most attractive person to young people for the rest of my life. Please be safe and never be weird. Let's stand. And just lift up your hands to heaven right now and ask for heaven's help and heaven's heart for the children for the youth, for young adults. Just ask right now, just, Holy Spirit, I can't do this, but you can. Help me to see the harvest fields. Okay, now you can put your hands down and just hold them comfortably. But just close your eyes and let your, let the Holy Spirit begin, begin to start speaking to you with the eyes of your heart and I want you to start I want you to see your children some of you in this room have adult children that have turned away from Jesus but those children that have turned away from Jesus they have grandchildren your grandchildren they have children that are your grandchildren and I want you just to picture your grandbabies right now your grandchildren Kate and I have four grandchildren there's nothing like being a grandparent. It is the greatest reward of a life lived. And I want you to just start to picture those grandchildren. And those of you who don't have any children, you might be an uncle or an auntie. And if you're too young, picture your friends. But just begin to picture those grandchildren. I especially want to speak to the grandparents. Start to picture the grandchildren. Make a decision in your heart. My grandbabies, they're mine. 
I absolutely am going to spend my days with them. When they're in my house and they're eating my pancakes with maple syrup, I'm going to talk to them. I'm going to learn their hearts. I'm going to ask them about their lives. And I'm, oh, so help me God with the Holy Spirit's help. I'm going to reveal Jesus to them. And if, my, if their parents don't like it, well, they gave them to me this morning. And that was their problem. Because my grandbabies, they're mine. And I'm going to pray for them. And not one of them, not one of them is going to be lost. And God is going to raise up a generation of radical, fiery lovers that are our grandchildren's ages. Thank you for listening to the Consumed Church weekly podcast. This entire service and others can be viewed on our Facebook and YouTube channels. If you would like to partner with us in raising the next generation of kingdom bringers, you can do so at theconsumedchurch.com slash give.